0: Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Many of our rights need to be understood in a technological context. Saying that the First Amendment protects the freedom of speech, for instance, requires understanding what speech is. And, indeed, questions about the scope of the First Amendment and the speech that it protects. Are among the most hotly debated today. Another example, one that receives less front-page attention of the newspapers, is the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. If the government suspects you of a crime, they cannot search your house and seize potential evidence to be used against you without going to a judge and getting a warrant first. But this protection is not absolute. If you commit a crime in public view of the police, or you share what you did with a third party, or there is an emergency situation that requires police to respond to a crime in progress. The government may be able to respond without a warrant. Technology has changed our understanding of what it means to do something, quote, in public, or for you to share information with a third party. When you go to a website using the public internet, have you done that in public? Have you shared your activity with the owner of the website, a third party? What about if you carry a cell phone around town with you? Your cellular carrier knows where your phone goes. Have you done that in public? Have you shared that information with a third party? Or what about the public street in front of your house? Can the police set up a camera to track when you come and go from your house over a period of months without getting a warrant first? These are all surprisingly hard questions. I'm joined today by Matthew Toxin, a law professor at the University of Utah who is an expert in just these issues.
1: My name is Matthew Toxin, and I write on a lot of topics, but mostly focus on the Fourth Amendment and sort of government surveillance, particularly with respect to new technologies. You have a
0: couple of articles on a very important generation-defining Supreme Court case from 2018, the Carpenter case, and I I think that we can start our discussion with that case and some of your work on it. Can you just explain, without getting into Carpenter yet, before 2018, what is the Fourth Amendment? How do the courts think about it? What is the so-called CATS test?
1: Yeah, and and I'll even start uh, earlier than that, right? Prior to the 1960s, the Fourth Amendment, which, you know, governs searches and seizures and and imposes a warrant requirement, wasn't really that important to the day-to-day of policing. It was mostly a property-based idea and there wasn't much of a penalty for violating it courts didn't really or at least didn't consistently exclude evidence prior to a case called map versus ohio decided in the 1960s so that's sort of where we started in the in the 60s the criminal procedure revolution and part of that uh, revolution was a case called cats and in cats someone was Using public telephones to call in gambling information, the police bugged one of the phone booths and recorded his conversations with uh, sort of a small microphone. And the court said this violates the Fourth Amendment. You know, we're not quite sure why, but the test that arose from the Katz case was essentially this idea of if you violate someone's reasonable expectations of privacy, then you violated the Fourth Amendment. At least if you if you don't have a warrant or a warrant equivalent. And so that's been sort of the test from 1967 till at least 2018 and really through till today. Did someone have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their phone booth, in their telephone call, you know, in their house, in their car, et cetera? And that's been the standard that governs the Fourth Amendment. And so, you know, it's good because it expanded the Fourth Amendment to cover things like wiretapping and bugs, but it's been criticized quite rightly as being really vague. And really sort of amorphous, and there's all these theories of what it means to have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and it can sort of mean whatever anyone wants it to mean. So it's it's quite confusing.
0: And the idea right there, before we get into any of the modern stuff and the technology and Carpenter and everything, the idea right there with the Fourth Amendment is on its own really quite complicated. So the Fourth Amendment says that the government, they need to go to a judge and get a warrant, and there are certain requirements that they need to meet in order to get a warrant in order to search or seize property from a citizen. So uh, if they want to follow me around, and uh, or they want to break into my house, let's start with that, if they want to break into my house and look for evidence, they need to go to a judge. But they don't need to go get a warrant if they just see me out in the street committing a crime. They can say, oh, we saw you do that. So there is some distinction there between stuff that is private that they need to get permission in order to obtain and stuff that I am doing in a way that somehow is disclosing it publicly so the government is presumed to be able to have access to it. Yeah. We're, that, we're, that, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: That, that's right. Uh, and I mean, it may, maybe that's a good place to start as well as just, you know, what, what does the Fourth Amendment mean generally? I always say it's sort of a three-question inquiry with the Fourth Amendment. The first is just like, does it apply in the first place? Is this a search or a seizure? And that's sort of what the CATS test is about, you know, do we even have to worry about the Fourth Amendment? And then there's a question of, you know, is the search or seizure reasonable? Usually that means getting a warrant. But uh, it can, it, there can be other things as well. And then there's sort of the, the remedy question at the end. But yeah, so when we're talking about a Fourth Amendment search, we mean, does the Fourth Amendment apply at all? If they're going to break into your house, they're going to have to go get a warrant from a neutral uh, magistrate or judge uh, that says, you know, you have they have probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime in your house or evidence to believe an arrest warrant for you um, because they have probable cause to think you've committed a crime. And then... There are other areas where they don't have to get a warrant. There's plenty of information gathering that the police can do where they don't require a warrant because the Fourth Amendment just doesn't apply. They can talk to you on the street. They can look at what you're doing in a public area. They can search the park for, you know, the the bloody uh, axe that you dropped uh, in the grass, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, they can talk to witnesses. They they can talk to whomever. Uh, All that stuff mostly occurring in public spaces is sort of up for grabs and they don't need a warrant. That's how they generate the probable cause to get a warrant later.
0: So I'm going to put a proposition to you that might be controversial, and I'm curious your response to it. The proposition is that changing technology plays a uniquely important role in shaping and changing our understanding of the Fourth Amendment. So if we look at important Fourth Amendment cases, I'm just going to mention some names, but we don't need to talk about these cases in particular. We have things going back to the 1920s, Olmstead, that involves telephones, Katz involves telephones also. More recently, we have things like Kylo and Jones, which involve infrared cameras and GPS tracking, and Carpenter itself deals with cell phones. These are all big changes in technological capabilities, either technologies that ordinary citizens use or that the government has access to that changes the relationship between private information and the government's ability to access information. So is technology and the Fourth Amendment a
1: particularly important set of issues there? I think so. I I think that's exactly right, that almost unique among constitutional law issues, technology has been a part of the Fourth Amendment almost since it started mattering uh, and even before. The rise of the automobile was sort of important for, um, you know, policing And the sort of pre-modern era of Fourth Amendment uh, law that we saw, you know, there's an automobile exception of the warrant requirement, things like that. And really, as I said, when the Fourth Amendment really starts to become important in the 1960s, a lot of it is is the result of things like wiretapping becoming more popularly used. And uh, now, of course, there was wiretapping prior to the 60s, but it was sort of coming to light then and getting regulated because a lot of the abuses of the J. Edgar Hoover era were coming to light. And so responding to these new technologies of surveillance uh, is a big part uh, of Fourth Amendment law. That has continued, as you said, you know, it went from sort of simple beepers that you could track, like radio beepers that that would help uh, the police track a car, to infrared cameras. And now in the Internet era, it's... So much of policing in at least the surveillance aspects of policing are data driven, you know, are collecting digital information or using advanced surveillance tools to investigate crimes. And so I think the importance of the Fourth Amendment continues to grow as these technologies continue to advance.
0: So what, one last set of questions before we turn to the recent changes with Carpenter. You explained with the Katz case, the court introduced this idea of the, a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, so if you have, as a citizen, a reasonable expectation of privacy, the government needs to get a warrant in order to search or seize material from you. How static is that concept? And I have two distinct ideas I think are intention here. The first is, I as a citizen, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy. 20 years ago, I didn't have cell phones. I didn't have lots of data information stored on my cell phone. Today, I do. So my expectation of privacy in my portable telephone device is different today than it was 20 years ago. Another way we could think about this is the police or law enforcement, the government, they have new technological capabilities. So my use of the technology or my use of just my house hasn't necessarily changed, but the police's ability to use technology to peer into my house, to look over a fence, for instance, or look through a wall, literally, or to track my phone movement, even if it were a old analog cell phone, has changed. Are those two different sets of technological changes complementary? Are they intention? Is one more important than the other in how this reasonable expectation of test that we used to look to with cats and perhaps today look to in different ways post-Carpenter, uh, are they
1: intention? Well, I think one of the drawbacks or one of the difficulties with the reasonable expectation of privacy test is if you really take it literally and we're looking at expectations, expectations are a very fluid thing, you know, for a lot of reasons. People's knowledge of technology is constantly changing, the technology itself is constantly changing, yet government uses, government techniques are constantly sort of improving and and developing. And so if we're really going to look towards actual societal expectations of privacy, they're going to be in flux. Both, as you said, people might expect more privacy or expect less privacy because of, you know, technologies and the police, people might expect less privacy because the police are getting better and better at sort of uh, getting around it or, or violating it. And so that, you know, That sort of circularity can be a real issue with at least some theories of the reasonable expectation of privacy test because I don't think we want a test that says as technology advances, as the police get better and better, you know, you lose your Fourth Amendment protections. We'd almost want, we want the opposite, right? I mean, to your point earlier about changing technology in the Fourth Amendment, I think... 20, 30 years ago, a lot of the barriers to government surveillance were practical. It's Mm -hmm. just you weren't going to be able to pay someone to track a car for longer than a few days. It just almost certainly wouldn't be worth it unless we're talking about you know a mob boss or something like that. Whereas today, we can track your location via cell phone for pennies, basically. And so the cost of a lot of the surveillance has just really dropped radically. And because we're losing these practical barriers to surveillance, we're either going to have robust legal barriers to surveillance or no barriers at all. I think that ties in a little bit with the, what is a reasonable expectation of privacy in this era where the police have powerful and sort of universal surveillance technologies.
0: So let's go to 2018 and the Carpenter test. I'll let you explain what was going on in the Carpenter case. Going into it, I'll I'll put terrible words in your mouth. We had this rubbish reasonable expectation of properties test that was very hard to know what it means. And this case comes up, Carpenter, what's going on in Carpenter? What does the court leave us with? Is it more or less rubbish than cats?
1: Uh, Sure. So. The the Carpenter case itself is pretty interesting. There was a suspect, he was suspected of robbing several stores, ironically to steal cell phones from stores like Radio Shack and and things of that nature. And so the police tracked him using his own cell phone. And and basically what we learn from this case is that whenever a cell phone is switched on, it's sending out radio waves. The radio waves hit various cell phone towers, which are all around the city, uh, wherever you live. And we can tell by when the signal hits which tower and which antenna on which tower, roughly where you are, right, where you are holding your cell phone. So they use this technology to track Carpenter and they found that he was in the general area of a whole bunch of these cell phone robberies uh, where where he's breaking into stores. That was part of the evidence they used in, I think, getting a a search warrant and and eventually convicting him. And he challenged this evidence and said, look, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this. You would need a warrant to get this information. You can't just get it. So the court ultimately, in a split decision, a majority of justices ruled that this was a violation of the Fourth Amendment to get it without a a search warrant. Basically, this is information that's quite revealing about people's personal lives, you know, everywhere you go. There's potentially a lot of it. It basically, you know, cell phone companies store this stuff for five years or or so. So you could almost trace back in time everywhere a person has gone for five years. And there were other issues. You know, this isn't really voluntarily disclosed because it just happens automatically whenever you have a cell phone on. It's really hard to go through modern life without owning a cell phone. You know, I, I think pretty much everyone I know owns one. Something like ninety-eight percent of Americans do uh, at this time. And so, for all these reasons, the court said we're going to protect this information. That the Fourth Amendment protects this information, and that's true regardless of the fact that this information is held by a third party, held by you know Sprint and uh, T-Mobile and et cetera. They have this information, but the government can't go get their information because Carpenter, because you and I have a Fourth Amendment interest in this info, even though it's held by other parties. And that's kind of a revolutionary step that uh, the court hadn't done before. Isn't that surprising, though?
0: And if you, 98% of Americans have cell phones, if you were to go out and survey all of them and ask, so you've got your cell phone, can the government use that to just track your location in real time everywhere that you've been historically over the last 8 months, 12 months, however long. I'd be willing to bet we'd have about 98% of Americans who would say, "No, that that would violate I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in my location and the government shouldn't be able to
1: just get access to this." Why is this even a hard question? Two responses. But one, it's funny that you mentioned that. I actually have a pre-Carpenter study where I basically do ask people, not sort of should the government be able to track your location, or can they legally, but do cell phone companies collect and store your location information? Because a lot of uh, courts, before you know, lower courts before the Supreme Court get to this issue, said, "Oh, well, everyone knows that this happens." You know, everyone's aware of this. And I said, "Well, that can't be right. I don't think anyone knows about this, really." And yeah, if you ask people, you know, you get somewhere between 10 and 20 percent say say yes. A much broader set of people say no, and then most people say, "I don't know. I have no idea." I also, I think, in that survey, asked a question about can the government legally track your location, and I think got similar numbers. So it wasn't 98 percent, but it was a lot of people said no. Of course not. So I think your intuition is largely correct. You know, why is this a difficult case? I mean, one reason that it was a difficult case, one reason why all the lower courts to have addressed this issue said, yes, feel free, you know, take all the location information uh, that you want, don't feel the need to get a warrant, etc. One reason that that was the case is there was something called the third party doctrine prior to this case, where courts had said, if you disclose your information to a third party, like say, a phone company or a bank or or et cetera, the government can get it without a warrant. It's sort of exposed for all purposes. That was a much criticized doctrine, and and Carpenter cuts back on it, at least to some degree. And so it's a little ambiguous where that is going forward. But that's part of the reason why this was a controversial case, because there was this longstanding principle that you give up your information to the phone company, that means that the police can get it, you know, without a warrant or or any suspicion.
0: How much is the third-party doctrine, or perhaps I should say was the third-party doctrine, and I have a rising inflection in there because I don't know whether the third-party doctrine still is a doctrine. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. How much is that a analog to the in plain sight. If you do something in public, if I rob someone in the streets in front of the police or in front of uh, witnesses, the police don't need to get a warrant to say, people saw you doing this. We saw you doing this. It was in public. It was in plain sight. It was no longer your information. How much is a third-party doctrine just a, you did this Publicly, You did this with other people, so it's no longer your private information style of a doctrine.
1: Yeah, so I think it's an open question whether the third-party doctrine sort of is still around. I mean, I think it's still around in some form, and I think what we know for certain is that Carpenter cuts back on it, but we don't know quite yet to what extent it cuts back. You know, Has, has it eliminated it going forward, or is it just sort of a narrower exception to it? That very much remains to be seen. And the lower courts are somewhat split on this. Some lower courts say third-party doctrine is still very strong. Some lower courts really apply Carpenter to cut back on the third-party doctrine in a lot of areas. So that's that's an open question. And then, you know, to what extent is this like the concept of public exposure? It's related but a little different in that when we think about things that are publicly exposed and therefore not protected by the Fourth Amendment, we're traditionally talking about things like stuff published in a newspaper or stuff that happens in a public space like a park or or a street visible to anyone. With the third-party doctrine, part of the, the rub of it was that all you had to do was disclose to one other party. And so, for instance, a lot of times that other party was like a bank. The police could get your bank records and still can get your bank records, even after Carpenter, with nothing, with just a court order, basically. And so the idea is, well, you disclose it to the bank employees, so how private can it be? Well, I think a lot of people said, well, still very private. You know, I have this sort of fiduciary relationship with the bank, and I trust them not to spread my financial info all around. But you're telling me that the police can go get it. So, you know, it's not quite public. It's just like one other person is good enough, which isn't how they do it in, in other areas of law, like in privacy torts and things like that you would be required to disclose something to a a much wider set of people to lose your privacy interests in it. In Fourth Amendment law, it hasn't traditionally worked like that. Carpenter is a step in the right direction of cutting back on this idea that disclosure to one human is disclosure to everyone.
0: It's fascinating. I'll make a similarly broad over a statement, but I would expect that most people, if you were to ask, are your bank records, can the government just go to your credit card company and get a list of everything that you've bought? Oh, no way. Can they go to Amazon and get a list of everything you've bought? Oh, no way. Well, it turns out those might not be as clear-cut cases and Carpenter has changed how we think about these. Can you just spell out uh, in a, a little more specificity, what are the factors or what sort of questions does Carpenter instruct courts to look at when deciding whether the Fourth Amendment does protect someone's information?
1: Sure. So if you look at the Carpenter opinion, they don't expressly set out a test going forward to determine what's going to be protected, you know, in terms of digital data or data disclosed to a third party or whatever. But they do talk about a whole bunch of factors uh, in the opinion, including the revealing nature of the cell phone data, the large amounts of data at issue, whether or not the data is voluntarily disclosed, and the cost of the surveillance, like how easy or how cheap is it to gather something. I was sort of curious as to what Carpenter really meant you know how it's been applied in the lower courts because the Supreme Court sort of left it to the lower courts to really flesh out the details they said here's what we think about this one issue they didn't really give them more guidance but they clearly were doing something major and so I looked at how the lower courts have interpreted this opinion and if you look at these cases you know I looked at uh, about 850 cases citing Carpenter, if you look at how lower courts have applied Carpenter, especially in frontier cases, you see those first three factors the most. The the revealing nature of data, the amount of data that gets collected, and whether or not the data was voluntarily disclosed. Those are by far the most popular sort of aspects of Carpenter to talk about. And courts, you know, use them fairly frequently, especially in frontier cases. And so in my work, I've sort of suggested that what we're moving towards is a new carpenter test, a test that may or may not displace the CATS test or may just sort of augment it or, or you know, be a part of it that courts can use to determine whether a new surveillance technology is it violates the Fourth Amendment or not. You know, is the information it gathers really revealing? Is the government gathering a lot of that information? And has the person sort of voluntarily given it up to the public? Or are they keeping it pretty private? Those seem to be the most important factors going forward.
0: So is this a changing understanding of the Fourth Amendment? Or is this just a refinement of what the Fourth Amendment is supposed to be doing? Is the Supreme Court just giving us a clearer way of understanding whether the warrant requirement applies that's perhaps more flexible or responsive to consumer expectations in light of changing technology?
1: I think it's somewhat of a matter of perspective, but I think I agree with the many scholars who look at Carpenter and see a revolutionary change, you know, see a huge change in how things are going to be done if the Supreme Court really adopts this, these factors as a Carpenter test. If lower courts continue to apply these factors and do so even in a more formal way at, as a test, I think that's a fairly revolutionary change in Fourth Amendment law. Just because it it would give a lot more guidance to courts than the CATS test, it would really sort of shape and cabin their their analyses of these issues going forward. Um, At the same time, this stuff is not brand new. A lot of these concepts did not originate in Carpenter. They're sort of taken from a whole bunch of previous cases applying CATS over the decades in that way, it's more of an evolution than a revolution, but still uh, a big one. It's like we're you know we're we're out of the ocean and we're walking on the sand here. <laughs> We've evolved, but you know it's a big change. So I, I think for the most part, I, I see it as like a blockbuster, as a sea change opinion. But it's not completely uh, inventing a bunch of new stuff. It's more like it's drawing on these cases, cases like Kilo, uh, cases like you know Bond, and uh, just all these all these previous cases that look to intimacy and revealing nature, that looked at the amount of data that gets captured, that looked at, you know, disclosure through the third-party doctrine. There's there's a long line of stuff that they can draw on uh, for support.
0: So let's turn to a specific application and talk about your work looking at police use of poll cameras. Um, can you tell us just what's the factual setting here? Uh, what what are poll cameras? How are police using them?
1: Yeah, so the, the next big surveillance issue that seems to be bubbling up in the lower courts and that uh, the Supreme Court has already shown some interest in and I think is likely to, to grant a case on, you know, sometime over the next few years, involves poll cameras or telephone poll cameras They're basically just powerful surveillance cameras that the police mount on a utility pole in front of someone's house, typically on a a residential street. They aim them at the house at like a front yard, typically the driveway and the, the front door, and we'll just leave them on for typically months at a time and record all the comings and goings. This, you know, is helpful in investigations. You can sort of see if people are getting drug deliveries or if they're associating with people who you also suspect and know about, things like that. These come up in uh, increasingly large amount of cases. It's, it's coming up more and more frequently. A bunch of the circuit courts have started to weigh in. I think this is headed to to the Supreme Court at, at some point.
0: Predictions on how you think the court I, I won't ask actually what you think the court will do. Predictions on what factors you think the court will look to or if you could walk us through those factors?
1: Yeah, so one thing I noticed when I looked at the poll camera cases, is that if the homeowner has built a fence that sort of obscures their yard, they basically always win. If the poll camera is seeing something that the public can't see, then it's sort of a slam dunk win under whatever tests you want to apply. The harder case and the much more interesting case is when it raises the following question, which is, can the government set up a poll camera, you know, on a poll and look at someone's house for say a year, right? Uh, Or two years um, without ever getting a warrant. And the reason it's interesting is because it really it sort of it, – it seems to turn on this idea that the amount of data, or the duration of the surveillance matters and is part of the reason why something might be a search or, or not a search. This is a, a somewhat controversial proposition but one that I think Carpenter clearly endorses where Carpenter says, look, part of the reason this is a search is there's so much of it. You're just collecting so much data about someone's personal life and everywhere they go. And that's part of the concern. The, the more data that you have, the – bigger the chances are that you're gonna really find out some private, you know, intimate stuff about a person's life. And so we see that here. If you the police walk by someone's house or are there, you know, are outside in a van for for a day, I'm not sure that really raises serious Fourth Amendment concerns. If they're watching everything you do in your yard and everyone who comes and goes for months and years on end. I think that starts to violate the Fourth Amendment. It just becomes enough of a privacy intrusion, again, under those Carpenter factors, under the Carpenter test, that I think the court should impose a warrant requirement. So it's a close question. And, yeah, it's difficult to know what the court will do. You know, the composition of the court has changed slightly since Carpenter, so that introduces some ambiguity as well. Uh, but I'm hopeful that the court will see this and think to themselves, you know, this could happen in my house. These are justices of interest to people. People would love to know who's coming and going outside their residences, uh, what they do in their yards, you know, all the, whenever they leave and whenever they come back. And I think they may be sensitive to the idea that this can be pretty revealing, pretty private stuff.
0: You just made a, a really – fascinating small side comment I just want to highlight right there. You and I, we grew up in an era, we came of age in an era when the Supreme Court didn't change much for a decade plus. And we're now in a new era where eight of the nine justices were not on the court when we were growing up In the law that we grew up with was developing. And we actually have seen a fair bit of churn in the composition of the Supreme Court over the last 15 to 20 years, which I think for a lot of legal scholars, has changed how dynamic and the pace of change that we can see of judicial doctrines in a really fascinating way. Uh, so that that's just a side observation and comment. I wonder with the, the poll cameras, would it be any different if the police were to just put a couple of officers outside of your house Uh, you don't have a fence, let's take that issue out there. They just put a couple of police officers in unmarked cars for a year and for some reason they make that investment and they monitor all of your comings and goings. How or why is that different than the use of pole cameras?
1: I think that's a really uh, great question. I think I think that under the Carpenter test, under Carpenter, it doesn't make a huge difference. I think that would likely be a Fourth Amendment search as well under the sort of three-part Carpenter test, right? Assuming that they are able to see at night like a camera and, you know, constantly vigilant like a camera, uh, and they're really doing a great job, I think you sort of get to the same place. They're they're picking up a lot of stuff that's very revealing in private. They are collecting a huge, huge amount of it. And the person, you know, the the voluntary disclosure piece— on pole cameras is kind of interesting because you could say, well, look, you didn't build a fence. You're voluntarily disclosing this information to the public. Anyone could walk by and and see it versus, well, sure, but I don't expect people to see everything for months on end. And maybe I can't build a fence because I rent or because I don't have the money. It costs thousands of dollars typically to surround your house with a fence or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so there, there's that piece. I think all those factors are sort of similar with the person and the surveillance camera. One area where they differ is that cost factor, which again is not a huge part of the Carpenter analysis so far, but I think can be helpful here, right? The, In other words, I think the use of surveillance cameras is more problematic than the use of officers getting paid a lot of overtime to monitor someone, and here's why. With uh, officers getting paid overtime to monitor someone, it's really costly. It's really, it's gonna be a huge line item on the police sort of budget. And if they really think, if they're monitoring someone who they think is gonna try to blow up the world or something, and so they're willing to throw millions of dollars at it, I think there's less likelihood of abuse. It's also gonna be a narrow, you can't do it to everyone. It's It's a much narrower sort of focus. And it's so visible to the political process and to sort of overseers, you can give it a lot more scrutiny. When the cost is so low, there's a much greater potential for abuse because it's less visible. You're not spending a lot of money on a surveillance camera. It's maybe a, a couple of thousand dollars to buy one, and then you can use it over and over again. It doesn't cost much to install. So you're not going to get a lot of oversight. You can do it against everyone. You can do it for low-value targets. You know, you can do it because someone, you know, said something rude to you on the golf course, and, and you you just want to monitor them. I mean, uh, for all of these technologies there're going to be some instances of abuse we always see you know police using location tracking to track their uh, child who hasn't come home from from school or has missed their curfew and that's fine but you know well it's not fine it's it's a constitutional violation uh, although perhaps an understandable one. And then you see things like, you know, tracking uh, love interests, stalking, things like that. It, you, you're going to see abuses. The more power you give any human being, you're going to see some abuses with it. It's, it's not anything to do with the specific uh, officers. It's just you give people uh, massive amounts of power. And you're going to get massive amounts of, of abuses over time. So mm-hmm. that's a concern with low cost surveillance
0: with great power comes massive abuses of civil rights. Um, Indeed, indeed. Not not the normal Spider-Man principle there. Um, I have so many permutations uh, of classic uh, surveillance questions that I could ask. I, I do want to just ask uh, one or two more. So just watching police procedurals, one of the the standard things that the crime happens, the police show up and one of the savvy officers looks up and says, there's a surveillance camera there, or there's an ATM across the street. They, they've they got video surveillance. Um, so they aren't installing a camera, there just happens to be one. They go to the, the store owner and say, hey, will you give us uh, access to this video, and they do, because it's their video. Is that going to be different under Carpenter? Do you think the police need to get a warrant in order to obtain videos made by third parties?
1: Not typically. I think in that kind of scenario where we're talking about traditional surveillance camera, you know, outside of a bank or other business, typically in a commercial area, but really in any area, I think for the most part, those are going to be considered not any sort of violation of anyone's Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, Indeed, the Carpenter opinion sort of singled these out to some degree and says, look, we're not saying anything about traditional surveillance cameras. Those are presumably fine. So I I don't think either the, the sort of Carpenter test or Carpenter itself will implicate those sorts of cameras. Pole cameras are different in part because the house and home and yard get additional protections in Fourth Amendment law. You know, to frame it under the Carpenter test, both the revealing nature is sort of substantially greater where if we're talking about a residence than, you know, you went to the ATM or something like that. And the I think the disclosure piece is different. If you're walking around where a bank is or a private business, you might expect to be observed or or, you know, be exposing yourself to those cameras or that, you know, people observing you at that business. When you're at home, when you're playing with your kids in your front yard, when you're, you know, walking in your house at 2:30 in the morning, I think there's a lot less uh, in the way of public disclosure, there. So I, I think those cameras are, are likely to be uh, okay, just as they are today.
0: Does the secrecy of the cameras matter at all, which is to say, does it matter if the police are surreptitiously or installing surreptitious cameras that the suspect or the individual might not know are there, or if they were to put bright blue flashing lights on top of the camera so everyone could see that they were there, and the individual knows, okay, I'm being surveilled, I should only uh, do all my criminal activity, I should always go to the library uh, to do my criminal stuff and uh, not do it while I'm at home. Does that matter at all?
1: I don't know if, I like that question. I don't know if it matters for the doctrinal purposes. I'm not sure if it changes much as about the test. I mean, one thing to say is that typically these cameras are surreptitious. They're very small. They are typically gonna be installed, you know, at times when the police perceive that the homeowner is not observing them. And they're sort of not meant to be seen. They can be, you know, maybe an inch or two inches in height, kind of a thing. Uh, they're supposed to be surreptitious. So, you know, maybe the extremely paranoid among us, and also people who are familiar with a, what a pole camera looks like, and you know, they look different depending on the brand, might check our our poles for the, for these cameras and maybe spot them if we're really good. But for the most part, you're not going to spot them. But I, there are cameras, as you said, there is the sort of public streets version, which does have a flashing blue light. We have some here in Salt Lake City. I think those would likely. Be analyzed in a similar way under, you know, the Carpenter test or et cetera. That said, you're maybe they're less revealing because you're just going to get less. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the other problem is, yeah, that you're they're going to be a lot less useful to you than the secret ones because any savvy criminal is yeah going to go out to a third uh, location to meet their uh, confederates to to plan crimes um, rather than do it right <laughs> yep. uh, in a house that they know is being monitored. But I I, I don't know. I like that scenario.
0: I, I guess another variation on that instead targeting an individual very frequently police will have heightened monitoring of high crime areas. So I I could imagine a scenario where the police say, this is the the bad part of town, we're going to put more cameras there. And that, that could be a really fascinating question, whether because they're not doing general surveillance within the entire jurisdiction, but they're focusing on a particular part of town and implicitly therefore individuals in that particular part of town, is every individual effectively having their Fourth Amendment rights violated? And where do you draw that line?
1: Yeah, I I think there's uh, something problematic in the sort of current approach where, you know, we don't have ubiquitous cameras. And and indeed, those cameras might run afoul of Carpenter because they would allow the police to track everyone's movements, you know, everywhere they go. So instead, we have, as you said, targeted cameras often in areas thought to be uh, high crime areas. So far, I think that is thought to be legal, thought to be at least not a Fourth Amendment problem or even an equal protection clause sort of problem, despite the fact that place and, you know, demographics are correlated and, and you might see racial discrimination or other forms of discrimination, you know, class discrimination, et cetera, really tracking location. I mean, the, You know, there are other areas in Fourth Amendment law uh, involving high crime areas that seem to, mm-hmm. to be problematic for these reasons. So under current law, the Fourth Amendment doesn't seem to take sufficient notice of these things. There's nothing stopping us from passing statutes that say, you know, don't only target certain areas, you know, randomly distribute these cameras throughout the city or what have you, reduce the the number of these cameras or... Get community input on the placement of these cameras, make sure that people actually want them in their public spaces rather than see them as an oppressive mm-hmm. uh, sort of thing. So, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment law hasn't really extended to intermittent public place cameras and I think is probably unlikely to do so. But that doesn't stop us as a, as a jurisdiction, you know, as a city or a state or, or et cetera from addressing some of the the sort of equity harms that might come from targeting specific places with with cameras.
0: So we're starting to approach the end of our time. I do want to ask a couple of questions or at least one broad question about the nature of privacy generally, and how a fourth amendment doctrine changes that you study and are thinking about relate to broader changing understandings of privacy in America and in the world due to just changing technology and the internet in particular. And I'll, I'll actually frame this with one of the things that I just immediately go to with your work. I talk and write about in some of my own work, how the traditional erosion of the home as a sanctuary has been eroding, which is to say we, we historically have viewed the home, this is a inherently private place. Well, we're bringing all this technology into our home, we're bringing our phones into our home, so suddenly stuff that we're doing in our house is somewhat public. And a lot of areas of privacy law have struggled with this blurring of the distinction of our private place becoming public and your work is kind of looking at the other direction, stuff that you're doing in public that we've traditionally thought, oh, this is in public, this is the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. Well, actually you might have an expectation of privacy over some activities, even when you're doing them in public. So does this public-private distinction still apply or just more generally, what is the evolving direction of what, an expectation of privacy, reasonable or unreasonable or otherwise, is in the modern age.
1: Yeah, I, I think there can still be a meaningful distinction between sort of private spaces and public spaces. But as you suggest, that border is becoming a lot more permeable. And part of it has to do with just the uh, number of sensors, uh, microphones, cameras, et cetera, that we're all carrying around with us all the time that we didn't used to, to have. As you said, that we have the cell phones inside the home, we have smart technology, you know, smart speakers, Amazon's Alexa, things of that nature in our homes. We just have a lot more capability of recording ourselves in our most private spaces and moments than we used to. At the same time, the privacy that we used to have out in public because of the anonymous nature of being in public or because the police had limited capabilities or or et cetera, et cetera, you know, has also changed a little bit, again, because of those sensors and requires us to be a little more cognizant of the idea of protecting privacy even in public spaces. So technology is really disrupting that sort of barrier to some degree. I mean, it's still there and it's still there in law and in just social norms and activities. But, yeah, technology has really disrupted these things in part again, because there's just so much that can record you uh, in your life. I mean, we can, I mean we're we're in a podcast situation here, so we have lots of recording devices. But even after this is over, there will be, I'll have my phone, I'll you know, I'll have my computer or my camera. I mean, as I walk through, our, you know, I'm gonna carry my phone with me, I'll go home where I have uh, smart devices and things like that. I am I think of myself as particularly private, and yet I'm uh, constantly recording myself or, mm-hmm. or leaving myself vulnerable to recording. That's uh, modern life to some degree. Mm-hmm. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I, I have some closing thoughts. I, I think one of the things that can happen when we think about all the capabilities of surveillance and all the ways that our privacy is being eroded is we might become sort of pessimistic about the future of privacy. Uh, and our ability to block government surveillance and things like that. But I think there are some reasons for optimism out there, both because I think the Supreme Court is sensitive to these issues, is relatively tech-savvy, especially for a bunch of uh, experienced judges, and you know has been in recent years moving towards protecting privacy more and more via doctrinal means. I certainly think there's a hunger out there among users of the internet and of cell phones for more robust privacy protections You know, in terms of the consumer privacy and vis-a-vis private entities. There's certainly an appetite for privacy against the government. So... Things are moving in a decently good direction in terms of the law, and I hope to, to keep that ball rolling in the right direction. You know, we're at a, an interesting point where things might go uh, one way or the other in terms of personal privacy. And I think there's reason for hope and, and for optimism, but it, th- these questions remain open. I love that as a
0: note to uh, go out on. Matthew, thank you for taking the time and look forward to continuing to watch this area of law develop. I'm sure it will continue to be interesting. Thank you, Gus. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC.